Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi Julia, it's 2021 and we are super excited to be back with the pick list. It is the beginning of season three, episode 29, and we've got a brilliant series ahead of us, haven't we? Absolutely. Lots of very exciting guests lined up. And we should also say we've just added a a new option to thepicklist.co.uk where you can now put yourself forward as a potential guest for one of our future episodes. So if you've ever fancied being on the show with us, why don't you visit thepicklist.co.uk and let us know that you'd like to be a guest. We've also heard from loads of our listeners over the break uh, and they've been telling us their feedback on the pick list, which has been brilliant. So please do rate and review the pick list if you haven't already. Today, we've got a brilliant guest. Tell us who we've got, Julia. We're joined today by Donald Denver, who is General Manager for Great Britain at Board Beer. Donal has uh, quite a wide range of experience in the food and drink sector. I also discovered he lived in Germany for 10 years, um, so he brings a real international perspective to our discussion. Of course, given uh, the Irish perspective as well and his role at Board Beer, we did talk about the B word quite a lot. We talked extensively about Brexit and the impact on trade, as you might expect, and it's been fascinating to get Donal's perspective on that. I was very lucky the episode wasn't recorded in German because my (laughs) GCSE German definitely wasn't going to carry me through. Uh, And today's episode is sponsored, isn't it? It is. It's sponsored by Shopper Intelligence. Shopper Intelligence is an industry database that puts the voice of shoppers back into category management with survey-driven metrics you don't get from other sources, comparing across all supermarket fresh food and consumer goods categories. For more information, just go to shopperintelligence.com and we'll put the link in the show notes too. Shall we start the show? Donald, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Could you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to Food and Drink? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Donald Denver. I am the manager of Borbia's London office. Uh, For people who don't know what Borbia is, it is the Irish Food Board and we're responsible for uh, promoting Irish food and drink globally. And I guess my remit, obviously, is uh, the UK. So uh, what's my connection to food and drink? Well, I've actually been, I was thinking about this the other day. I've been working in the food and drink industry for over 10 years now, which is a little bit scary. Um, I've been in this job for about a year and a half as the manager of Borbia's London office. Prior to that, I managed Borbia's Germany office uh, based in Dusseldorf. Julia, which I believe you know uh, quite well. Um, So that was for about four and a half years. And actually prior to that, then I was based out in Thailand working for Synergy Flavours, which is headquartered actually in High Wycombe, not too far from from here, uh, from London. Uh, and that is a subsidiary of Carberry Group, which is a an Irish dairy company. So kind of all in all, my connection to the food industry is a relatively strong and frighteningly long one uh, at this point of my career. 
Fantastic. And I think that breadth of experience is really reflected in some of the articles that you've uh, you've chosen for us as well. Before we jump into your articles and, and quiz you on those, I, it's still, we're still in January. I think we're still to an extent in sort of forecasting season and thinking about what's ahead for, for 2021. Can you give us a really quick flavour of what the big focus for board beer is going to be this year? Any trends or issues that, that you think will dominate this year? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, the, the big news that we would have gotten um, was obviously in relation to Brexit uh, on Christmas Eve. It was a nice little, uh, I'm not sure if I call it a Christmas present, because it was more of a relief than joy, <laughs> I suppose. Um, so I guess, you know, since that, and we're probably going to get into it at some point, it's kind of almost hard to have a conversation without mentioning the B word at this point. Um, you know, now that all of that certainty is there, we can actually start to plan um, a little bit more strategically for the UK market uh, and start to look at, well, what are the assets that we have? So, you know, in terms of um, trends, like sustainability really is the one that is the big macro trend and the one that's not going away. Um, so we'd like to think that we're pretty well positioned on that front in terms of the kind of systems that we've, we've brought in. Uh, so what we'll be doing is seeing how can we look to help our Irish companies commercialize and use the sort of sustainability infrastructure that we've built up over the last well decade really um to match the kind of insights capabilities that we have as well so how do we match consumer trends uh, the sustainability consumer trends that are out there with a kind of commercial proposition for the, the Irish companies that we're dealing with in the UK so yeah sustainability is kind of one of those big macro ones I guess COVID-19 has brought up a lot of trends like, um, you know, scratch cooking obviously was a big one. Health is another macro trend that has really just accelerated, I suppose, with COVID. Um, and which of those trends will end up being sticky? Um, which ones will kind of turn into hybrid trends as people start to go back to the office or sort of half spend half the time in the office, half the time at home? And how will that all develop? So our main focus is really like looking at those trends and seeing how our companies can benefit from them. Yeah, and um, we've got a couple of articles that I think will speak to some of the trends that you picked out there. We'll be talking about plastic um, a little later on and, and also, of course, that whole sort of scratch cooking piece and, and the ready meals market with one of the articles that you've uh, picked as well. Another question that, that we were really uh, keen to ask you is, you know, the pick list is all about sort of finding interesting things to read and, and sharing interesting reads about the food and drink industry. Just give us a super quick sense of your own personal reading habits. How do you stay up to date on what's happening in the industry? And are there any particular publications that you read on a regular basis? Well, the classic, obviously, is The Grocer. I think <laughs> anyone who's, who's, uh, who's no not, there. not reading, reading The Grocer uh, shouldn't probably be, be in the industry. What I actually try and like to do is um, keep up to date with some of the publications uh, from my previous roles. So like when I was in Germany for the four and a half years, I try to keep up to date on the German language publications that I would have kept up to. So in other words, I haven't unsubscribed <laughs> from a lot of the kind of newsletters that I would have gotten. And it's just to see... Uh, where they're at in terms of, of consumer trends. Now, I have to say, when it comes to food and drink, the UK generally is a couple of years ahead of Germany when it comes to kind of innovations, uh, uh, branded or private label innovations. But I still like to just keep an eye on, on what's going on or even to track 
uh, how long or what amount of time has passed between an innovation coming in here versus versus Germany. And then I also, a um, bit of a nerd, kind of keep up on my my flavor business uh, newsletters from my uh, second previous role or two two roles away in, in the past um, from my role with Synergy Flavors in, in Thailand. So yeah, there's, there's like Food Navigator, um, Food Ingredients, Grocer, uh, IGD, Mintel, the Irish Times, which I think we'll probably get to. So uh, yeah, long reading list. Uh, the FT, I think we're going to have on today as well. So I, I kind of read that as general interest as well, just to kind of keep on top of things. Fantastic. Really nice broad selection of, uh, of, of publications there. So now tell us about the first article that you've picked for us. Well, I mentioned the B word there, so I suppose we'll get straight into it. Um, so this one is from the Irish Times, which I, I read every day. And one of the bigger food stories that was in there this week was around um, consumers likely to face a 9% increase in the cost of bread. And this is to do with Brexit tariffs on flour imports, increasing the costs um, for the sector. So like I said, it's somewhat unsurprising that I've chosen a Brexit related topic, uh, given my role, but essentially, what this article is highlighting is that the trade deal that I mentioned that obviously came in on the 24th of December, this is having a particularly negative impact on, on the Irish bakery sector. So um, it's got to do with tariffs being applied to flour imports from GB to Ireland because we don't actually produce any flour in Ireland. So we have to get it from GB. Um, and this is the, the details around rules of origin. So like under the rules of origin piece within the trade deal, you know, there is a requirement that the wheat that's used in the actual flour needs to be at least 85% from the UK or the EU. So that's actually stipulated. And that if there's wheat from other countries, like say uh, Canada or the US, which obviously are big wheat producing countries, that if there is wheat in there, it has to be below 15, the 15% threshold. Otherwise, there's a 172 euro tariff slapped onto the, the ton of flour essentially for the, for the bakery producer. So, it's obviously very difficult for the Irish bakery sector and um, they're actually looking for a special dispensation or derogation to mitigate against it. They've, they've written to various bodies on that. Um, and I guess this is just one of the issues really that's been on the agenda for a while. And now it's just really coming into much sharper focus um, as the actual practicalities of Brexit really start to, to hit home. Um, I know one of the other rules of origin issues that has come up is around like essentially the UK ha has for, for a long, long time acted as a distribution base for products that are going, uh, servicing the UK and Ireland as, as sort of one entity. But obviously the rules of origin piece of the trade deal states that, you know, that there needs to be some sort of a significant added value to these products for them to qualify for that, for that zero tariff piece. So in the previous setup, obviously, there was, you know, it demonstrated the kind of very interconnectedness, the interdependence of the UK and Irish supply chains and supply bases. Um, and this is really one of the issues that is just highlighting the, the sort of difficulties um, that, that the post-Brexit reality ha has now brought on. Um, so I guess, you know, since I've, since I've um, been uh, since 2021 has started you know we've been dealing with a couple of of um, brexit related issues they've been relatively low in quantity um i would say from the ireland to gb side um like we we'd like to think that this is down to our four years of preparation and <laughs> um, that we that we put in a lot of hard work in terms of training you know companies up on how to do all of the paperwork 
but um, the big issue at the moment is really GB to Northern Ireland. That's the big hot topic at the moment on, on retailers' agendas, uh, particularly, you know, the, the kind of conversations we're having with them. You know, for all intents and purposes, there's essentially like a border now in the, in the IRC with, with, with checks, etc. Um, and these are obviously going to get, you know, increase over the next couple of months. Uh, coming into April is phase two, coming into July is phase three. So that's going to ramp up. Um, so we're keeping an eye on that. We're staying close to retailers, understanding their issues, seeing what we can do in terms of information provision from our side. Um, you know, April is when the, the SPS checks, the, uh, the health certs come in. That's more red tape. You know, there are concerns around the infrastructure that's in place for those. And in, particularly, in particular, are there enough vets available? Um, to actually do these health certs, to put it kind of bluntly. Um, now, that's not something we're directly involved in, but it's something that we, we would be informing our clients about um, and keeping up to speed on. Um, obviously, there's a lot of news at the moment in, in Britain itself on the export side in terms of seafood is obviously the huge one. Um, so we, we keep an eye on that type of thing if we're not directly related to us in terms of our own exports into UK. But... You know, they're obviously looking for grace periods on bureaucracy. On the meat side, I think there are concerns, uh, and I'm sure Laura would be, would be uh, uh, familiar with these and, and well-placed to comment. But um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see what happens, you know, and as well, what's going to happen on, on UK agricultural policy? What types of supports are going to be in place to British farmers um, to replace the common agricultural policy? So I promised myself I wouldn't talk too much about Brexit, but <laughs> here we are. Here we are talking about it. There's so much to go at, isn't there? And I was really intrigued by your article because it's something that I wouldn't say. And it's it's great, Julia, asking the question about, you know, what is it you read every week? And, and we're bombarded, aren't we, working in the food and drink industry with so many sources. So to, to see what the Irish Irish Times are reporting here was, was really fascinating. What do you think, as looking at that as a standalone case study for now, what are the endpoints going to be? Do you think there would be a derogation? Or do you think in some parts, and I guess it's the same for UK consumers, food is just going to get more expensive. We've had food at relatively low um, price. You know, th th it's always banded around that, you know, we've got the second lowest food prices in the world and people are going to have to get used to paying more. But that's not a great political platform to be on. What's yeah. uh, what, wh Where do you think that will go, Donal? Uh, I don't know for this specific case what will happen. Um, I think if we take a step back and look at it just more broadly, like what we're hearing from retailers is is that there's just a reevaluation of this of the food supply chain and the structure of how food is produced uh, uh distributed and processed in general um i think that the big elephant in the room of all of this is cost and price like you've identified you know we all know i'd say everybody you know food industry professionals that are, are that listen to this podcast are aware of the low margins in in the food industry and like where are those extra costs going to go there isn't a whole lot of wiggle room on either side really and it's not a case of who blinks first between customer and supplier it's a case of you know this is not economically viable to produce this product uh, now whether we're talking about bakery or anything else um you know ultimately i think it's a combination or will be a combination crystal ball time but like a combination of higher prices and re resetting to a certain extent of food food supply chains yeah 
And my second point is you mentioned there the training that Board Beer have done for the industry in Ireland and I was absolutely overwhelmed by how much training you guys have been doing and I was lucky enough to be over in Dublin 18 months ago and listening to the work that Board Beer were doing at that time, even training lorry drivers on paperwork to make sure trade was going to be as frictionless as possible. Do you think, I know notwithstanding the the vet's point, which is very real, you know, some of this is about is there enough people there to, to deal with this paperwork, but is it some of it just a training exercise to make sure everyone knows what we should be doing and once we're over all these hurdles, maybe this is me ever the optimist, once we're over all of this, then everyone will know how to fill out the form correctly and who yeah. needs to tick which boxes and then it It'll just be a whole lot easier. Well, a lot, yeah, a lot of it is. I mean, a lot of the delays and like the so-called, like like a lot of the complaints about red tape and the delays have been about, you know, the amount of paperwork. But we've had four years to, to prepare for this paperwork. You know, everyone has had four years to prepare for this paperwork. There weren't any secrets about what a custom declaration is. Like there was always going to have to be custom declarations made. We, we knew that from the beginning. Um, so I take with a pinch of salt a complaint about about uh, having to, to fill out custom declarations and not being prepared about certain topics because we've known that for a long time. Um, now, of course, you know, in terms of systems and all of that, that's something that is, is out of, either out of your control or, you know, uh, there's infrastructural upgrades that are required there. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is, you know, business does adapt. Um, like people do find, I mean, look at us, we're, we're sitting at home here um, doing a, a podcast virtually. We're working from home for the last almost year. Um, and just look at all of the restaurants who've pivoted into online, you know, uh, uh, and delivery and are surviving through that. So like bu- business adapts, um, I mean, generally quicker than government, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like trade finds a way, like trade flows do, do, um, do continue um, if there's a, a consumer demand uh, and a supply for a product at a price you know, a consumer is willing to pay and a producer is willing to produce, like trade will kind of find a way through that. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is, is actually upskilling, like whether it's, you know, supply chain mapping, whether it's customs uh, declarations, whether it's uh, negotiation training uh, to a certain extent that you have to be very clear about uh, increased costs with your customer. Like these are the types of programs we've been running for, for years now. Um, and, and I hope and think that that's why we've had relatively low uh, amounts of queries for, from the Irish side. And, and I think, you know, just listening to customers in the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been quite um, proud and enthused by the fact that, that the kind of queries from Ireland at least have been fairly low. Julia, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is from the Sunday Times, and it's an article titled, It Would Be Feast, Not Famine, If We Learned to Love Our Own Food, and it's a piece written by Joanna Blythman. And in many ways, it continues some of the themes that we've already started talking about around uh, Brexit and and self-sufficiency and trade. by way of background, Joanna is a, is a really well-known food journalist and author. Many of our listeners will be familiar with her work. She's also a grocer columnist. I used to work with her while I was at the grocer, and she's really an opinion editor's dream, a really great writer, and not shy about saying exactly what she thinks, which is exactly what you want from, from a columnist. This particular piece that she's written for the Sunday Times 
is to a large extent prompted by this ongoing debate that Donal's already referred to that we're having about security of food supply, trade in the into the into and out of the UK post Brexit, post EU trade deal, and to an extent post COVID as well. Um, we are, of course, still continuing to see disruption to some trade, uh, some sectors still experiencing real difficulty uh, when it comes to uh, exports, and others, of course, worrying about their ability to get certain produce into the country. So Joanna is wondering if a lot of this anxiety about trade disruption is, in fact, rooted in a lack of confidence, if you will, and knowledge of what we produce locally. Do we in the UK simply appreciate our homegrown produce less than is the case in other countries? Do we crave imported goods because we fundamentally don't know about the breadth and the quality of what is produced here? And so she wonders if there's an opportunity here to re-engage consumers with local British food, get us to eat more based on the seasons as opposed to expecting permanent global summertime, and also drive up self-sufficiency in the process. Um, and crucially, I suppose, part of this argument is that if imports are less easily available in the future, perhaps some of the big buyers, such as the supermarkets, will have more of an incentive to look more carefully at what really needs to be imported and what could perhaps be produced closer to home. And I'm really interested in, in this idea, and uh, partly because I can't quite make up my own mind about it, which is why I wanted to discuss it with you both um, on the show. And I think, Donal, you've got a really uh, interesting perspective on this, given your experience of Germany, but also, of course, from an Irish perspective. Um, and I just wonder what you make of this debate that's happening in the UK at the moment, where we're sort of starting to grapple with this sense of, you know, is there perhaps an upside to having a little bit of that trade disruption? And are we really underappreciating the local produce and, and, and the local food that we grow here? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I was interested and quite glad to see that um, the image on the website is, is that Ireland is actually included um, <laughs> now as, as one of the regions, even if we're not part of the UK, but we're actually included on the map. So if anyone is uh, researching the, the article later on, they can see. And, and you know, what? this is great because it just goes to show that, you know, when it comes to food and drink in consumers minds, Ireland is considered local. Um, and actually, we've got a fair bit of research and insights that actually confirm this fact. So Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, when we put them side by side and ask consumers about being open to choosing um, food and drink from those countries, we rank right up there and there's, there's a big drop off then afterwards. Um, I, I think in the article it's mentioned there's a 55% self-sufficiency in the UK on food for 2019. Like that is quite low. Um, Ireland is 680% uh, self-sufficient on, on food because we're just a huge net exporter um, because we're obviously a very small country and produce a lot of food, particularly beef and dairy. Um, I think like with all of these trends, it, it's a bit of a hybrid. Um, so I think we are obviously seeing an increase in the desire for people to, to shop local um, but there's also an increase in ch in people wanting choice and wanting premium. So um, I think they're probably mutually, um, you might say conflicting, but they're kind of, um, they happen side by side. So the, the consumer can shop local and then uh, buy Wagyu beef, for example, <laughs> or, or want to have a, a Wagyu beef from Japan uh, imported, but then go down and, and buy local the next day. Um, I think it's just a reflection of globalization. Um, 
you know, food is a very emotional topic. It's a very emotive topic. So people talk far less about where their iPhone was produced or where their financial services products came from or uh, whatever software uh, they're using. I don't know where Zoom was developed. We're on Zoom at the moment. But it, it, it's when it comes to food because you kind of put it into your body. It's very emotional. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's part of your survival. I think it gets a lot more attention in that sort of local space. Um, so I think, you know, the, the fact is like, it, it is 2021 and we do live in a global marketplace and we are an interconnected world. Like we've seen that more than ever uh, during COVID because of the, obviously the rise, rise of digital technology, et cetera. Um, another maybe final point I'd make on this is that the kind of direct to consumer trend has, has really, really taken off during COVID, whether it's farmers uh, delivering directly to consumers or farmers markets um, delivering direct to consumers. And I think what that is more about is actually, it's more about human beings and trust and it's more about transparency and knowing the farmer or the producer and that the animal welfare standards are high, that sustainability practices are high, rather than literally being five miles up the road. I think it's more about knowing that there's somebody behind it and a family behind it and a kind of a local and that they're being taken care of. So I think that the trust element is higher than the local element, if that makes sense. Um, but again, they're not totally mutually exclusive either. You made some amazing points, Donald, and I think that the local piece for Ireland, I think, is very valid. The data that I've seen it w- would um, also back that up. And interestingly, some data that I saw that people in the UK thought that New Zealand, although obviously not local, but because of the points that you've flagged about sustainability, about green pasture and all the rest of it, for lamb, because it's been on our supermarket shelves for so long, is synonymous with quality and actually hasn't got a trading differential to British. So some of those hurdles are going to be huge to come over, or to overcome rather. Uh, and I guess um, the other point that I thought about was education, both as, as you mentioned there about connection with agriculture. It's not in a lot of our national curriculum anymore, I connecting with um but farming because it is such a small part of our GDP and also cooking too when um, and Joanna's article is brilliant a lot of it you think it's a lot primary product and some of that you're going to have to be able to cook to be able to use it and we've just home economics has been on and off the national curriculum in the UK for so long that we probably have got swathes of generations that just can't cook that sort of product so wouldn't know what to do with seasonal variations across the year and the data that we see is you've got a meal um, repertoire of about six to eight dishes that you just rotate every single week not right well rhubarb's in season let's make a crumble that's a huge change and you've got to be embedding that into kids at the age of eight upwards I would have said so not impossible but yeah, it's very different. And maybe does it also fit in with this huge piece that we've heard about obesity over the last year as well? You know, government were very open and the national food strategies talked about this a bit, about how we need to be a healthier nation. And is that linked to cooking education and the connection back to what we're growing and we should be buying it and using it at home? Laura, what's your first article for us? Uh, my first article this week is from The Guardian and it's got the headline UK supermarkets not doing enough to cut plastic, says report. And this is a new report uh, from Greenpeace, an environmental investigation agency. Uh, and it's a report in their third year looking at um, plastics used by the retailers. 
Um, and this data is referring to 2019. Um, I was interested to see if it was referring to 2020, but not yet, because that's going to be really interesting about how we've uh, used plastic. So bearing that in mind, the footprint uh, is saying that this report uh, is bigger than what they measured in 2017. Um, and one of the, the major stats they're talking about is up um, 65% for plastic bags um, uh, from 2017. And to put that in perspective, um, the, each household in the UK in 2019 is buying on average 57 bags for life per, in that year. So you're buying over one uh, bag for life a week, which is just because uh, some of the numbers in this report is it, unsurprisingly all in billions. But when you break it down to the population, <laughs> so but the the article calls out really that the whole reuse uh, bags isn't working. We're just buying another one when we get there and not quite sure what we're doing when we get them all home maybe filling them with trainers under the stairs is is what I <laughs> tend to do but everyone will have a, a version um in April of this year um reusable sorry non-reusable plastic bags will increase to fit from five pence to ten pence um so that hopefully to try and get uh, folks to stop buying as many and start to reusing but will that 5p lift make an impact and then there was another stat that was pulled out in the article which I was really interested by and hadn't really thought about but it was cutlery plastic cutlery that's actually had a rise from 2017 by 36 percent uh, and the article really pulls out that there's a static picture the sector needs to urgently pick up the pace and to reduce the amount of plastic that we're using and like all these reports is a league table and retailers get very nervous when anything's in a league table and to, just to pick a couple of uh, um, I don't want to say winners and losers various players on the league table out Waitrose is top of the league table they've reduced their plastic uh, by uh, just over six percent since 2017 uh, Iceland and they've had a lot of coverage this week about rebuting some of the claims in this report are now bottom uh, of the list and that's because not only they've reduced some plastic in their own brand products but a lot of the FMCG products that they sell have haven't been able to do that. Aldi have um, in the report have risen to second place and that's because they've done two major things been more transparent about the amount of plastic they're using and also um, have stopped selling single-use plastic bags. Maybe that's why we're buying all reusable ones. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Morrison's have dropped to ninth place. And I was really interested by this because it the article pulls out the fact that, again, that because they're selling so many uh, plastic single-use bags. But we've seen a lot over Morrison's over the last 18 months about paper bags. So maybe that will come through into the 2020 data. So to summarise what it's saying is there's, there's pressure on FMCGs to be more transparent. Unsurprisingly, the Coca-Colas of this world are saying they're doing a lot to reduce plastic usage. But what it does call out in the report that uh, potentially even as, as close as next year, plastic usage is um, going to be in maybe some sort of financial type accounting. So it's in a format that is easily transferable and can read across different retailers and different suppliers into retail and be publicly available. So it's as we know, and you've mentioned at the beginning of the, sh the show, Donald, sustainability is hugely important to consumers now more than ever. Um, you know, David Attenborough mentions it almost every single time he's on TV, and some of these figures will be start reading for um, for the industry. And I guess 
I re- will be really interesting to see when last last year's data comes out. Actually, did plastic usage just even go through the roof even more as we battled the pandemic? What are your thoughts, Donal, on plastic usage, and what can the supply chain do? Because yeah. they're trying, but it's it seems that we're not trying hard enough at the moment. Yeah, I mean, almost every conversation we have uh, with retailers, plastic is called out um, as if, you know, that and carbon emissions, like kind of uh, one and two in terms of their sustainability agenda, it's really called out by all of the major customers. And they're concerned because it's a consumer concern. It's a regulatory concern, and it's 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 obviously going to be an even bigger concern now that uh, the U.S. have signed back up to the Paris uh, Climate Accord. So, kind of, you know, we have all of the major players like uh, getting the finger out, I suppose, in relation to um, climate issues, sustainability issues. It's funny because um, COVID was a bit of a setback for for plastic. Um, you know, there was a huge spike in plastic consumption because consumers wanted that safety. They they didn't want to touch food in store, and they wanted to use uh, plastic. Um, that has reset again. That was kind of was kind of calmed down again, and it's sort of back to normal to, in a certain sense of you know customers and big retailers trying to reset that agenda and and uh, decrease their their plastic consumption. Dona, what's your second pick for us? Okay, so my second article is actually not, it's kind of an article, it's a, it's a category report. Um, and I read the summary article. <laughs> so it's a category report in, in the grocery, which you just mentioned. Um, has COVID finished off ready meals? Uh, ready meals and soups category report 2021. Um Essentially, the, the article asks, you know, um, how ready meals can reassert their convenience and health credentials. So I have a couple of stats here that I might rattle through to kind of get the, the, the juices flowing on it. So in 2020, chilled ready meals were down 3.6%, according to Nielsen. Um, and that's obviously in a year when grocery in total was up 8%. Um, so quite significant uh, stat there. You know, at the very start of lockdown, so let's say almost this time last year, uh, they were actually down 25%. Um, now, it's mainly in the area of chilled ready meals because Ambient actually for the whole year was up 10.1% and Frozen was up 5.6%. But this was mainly due to, to panic buying and stockpiling, particularly at the beginning of, of the lockdowns. But the big uh, figure really is is the losses on on chilled ready meals, and chilled ready meals actually account for about uh, three quarters of the overall category. So the big decline for them um, obviously had a big impact on the overall all category. Interestingly, branded did well. So uh, Charlie Biggums is, is an example. They were up twenty percent uh, in terms of unit sales for chilled ready meals, and they had a really really strong performance. Um, because consumers essentially splashed out on premium. Um, chilled private label was down 5.1%. And this is actually 85% of the, the overall chilled market. So any decline here, even that 5% decline was going to have a huge impact overall. So essentially, you know, the big subcategory uh, chilled was down mainly because of private label, um, but branded did well. So I think brands in general have done well out, out of the pandemic. And that's probably not a good thing to say is no, nothing has, you know, there's been no real good news out of the pandemic, but in terms of food and drink, um, you know, brands have performed well, it's probably, probably a better way of putting it. 
because um, essentially, like I mentioned before, consumers are falling back on trust. Uh, it, it comes back to this trust piece. Um, so, you know, retailers also in terms of chilled ready meals, private label, they, they froze deals on it. And that was just to maintain availability. Um, because as we know, there was lots of empty shelves um, throughout the pandemic. Uh, online is obviously another big winner out of COVID. And online, generally speaking, is more suited to, e um, to brands. The e-commerce in general is more suited to brands than it is to private label. So that's another reason why the branded offering did well. And of course, neighborhood and convenience stores, they lean towards branded. So they've obviously far less private label offering than, than the big retail stores. And uh, like I said, you know, premium was positioned as, as a kind of an end of week celebratory uh, treat. So um, I guess there's a couple of learnings really um, in 2021 and beyond the, the sort of feeling in this article and this report is that those with a less processed feel, a healthier image will do well. Like we mentioned before, the health trend has accelerated during COVID anyway. So the brands that, that focus on this convenience and health will do well. And again, you know, um, some of the companies that were quoted in the article are seeing, well, how can we navigate this new hybrid life <laughs> that we're going to be living of kind of working more from home and then going back into the office? So combining that, that scratch cooking trend, which seems to be sticky, people are not going to unlearn how to cook. Um, you know, if they sort of rediscovered cooking or learned how to cook in the first place, they're not going to unlearn that. So how can... Um, uh, chilled ready meals and ready meals in general navigate that kind of new hybrid life of working from home and working in the office. Brilliant article and um, I was interested as well by some of the stats in Frozen and the losers in Frozen being uh, Slimming World and Weight Watchers which I just thought was a really strong indicator of where maybe the UK public's been in terms of their headspace over uh, the last period in thinking actually I just want as you say something that feels nutritious healthy but I don't want to be on frozen slimming um, products at the moment and I just want a, a meal that's going to suit my whole family which was fascinating and the, your point on trust and, and, and brands always brings me back to unsurprisingly the meat sector and whenever you look at the meat sector just the lack of brands that we've got when you walk down that meat fish and poultry aisle in store and even online as you say you know branded products sell so much better and how the meat industry could be missing out there by not having more branded propositions to tell a story to mm. and maybe hopefully that's something more we'll see of this year hopefully indeed yeah well we're, we're working on it uh, laura but I, I won't go into too much detail on that on <laughs> that today sure. but <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> yeah absolutely julia what's your second pick this week my second pick this week is from the FT, and it's an article titled Lazy Britons Aren't the Reason for the UK's Migrant Workforce, and it's a piece written by Sarah O'Connor. This piece caught my eye because it's a recurring debate that keeps popping up every few months, really. Um, I do remember commissioning an explainer article back uh, got when I was on the Grocer probably about two years ago and again sort of looking at some of the myths and misconceptions around seasonal workers but it's an issue that um, I think keeps coming up uh, time and time again because that narrative I think about lazy Brits turning their noses up at fruit and veg picking jobs is just too easy and too tempting for, for some people 
But Sarah O'Connor does a really great job explaining why that narrative is misguided. Um, she looks at the Pick for Britain campaign that was launched last spring. Right when borders were closed, migrant workers couldn't travel into the country. And of course, lots of Brits suddenly found themselves furloughed. So a great opportunity, it seemed, to get more Brits into fruit and veg picking jobs and reduce our reliance on migrant labour. Because as the article points out, an estimated 99% of the UK's seasonal agricultural workers in the edible horticulture sector come from the EU. Now, in reality, getting more Brits into these jobs didn't quite work out. Um, it really is a familiar pattern. Um, there's a decent amount of interest initially, but few applicants then actually get placed and even fewer then stick with those new jobs for any decent period of time. And this is largely, Sarah explains, because the work is hard, it's demanding and it requires technical expertise and mental stamina. There is that perception that these are massively unskilled jobs uh, which is which is completely inaccurate and I think um, people don't often appreciate the the experience and technical expertise that's required to do these jobs well. Uh, work is also irregular so workers often live on site and because our harvest seasons have expanded from you know what used to be a sort of typical period of six weeks to now six to eight months these are jobs that now awkwardly fall between two stools. They are neither just a summer job for students, nor are they a permanent 12-month job suitable for people with families to support or rent to pay. And above all, it's about pay. And I thought Sarah really summed up this conundrum perfectly. She writes, Britons aren't lazy, they're rational. They will do tough or antisocial jobs if the pay compensates sufficiently, like working on an oil rig. But picking jobs don't pay a premium compared with working in a shop or cafe. Migrants are rational too. For them, UK farm work does pay a premium compared with the jobs at home. And when the premium shrinks, they stop coming. All of which means if the UK government really does want fewer migrant workers and more Brits in fields, and this isn't just a political slogan or a convenient narrative, then the pay and the condition needs to be higher, and it probably means higher prices in the shops, which the government, as we mentioned earlier, also doesn't want. No one wants to see higher feed prices. So in the end, says Sarah, it's about being more open and more honest about the trade-offs that are required. If the UK government says it wants to curb lower paid migration to create, she says, quote, high wage, high skill, high productivity economy, then it needs to level with people and with itself about what exactly that is going to involve. I don't know, I, I was fascinated to, um, to to get your take on this and whether this there is a similar sort of debate happening within Ireland about migrant workers and that sense of why can't we get more local people to do the job? Yeah, I mean, it comes back to the, the, the previous point on the, the sort of interconnectedness and the globalised world that we live in. Um, like fundamentally, this is about supply and demand. Like it, it actually sort of, it relates a little bit back to the, the previous article that we were talking about in terms of um, using the food that's in the UK or growing more of the food that's in the UK. And I, I guess there, there's always an economic reality and 
unless the UK was to completely, or Ireland for that matter, or any country, was to completely shut its borders um, and be self-sufficient on everything, there is going to be trade flows. Um, and whether those trade flows are, are beef or dairy or uh, salmon or um, people, you know, uh, and labor as a, as, a, as a service that's being provided. And I think in the article it was called out mainly from Bulgaria, Romania, and I can't remember the third country that was called out. Um, but essentially, I mean, uh, people from those countries are also um, picking fruit and vegetables in Ireland. And there was also an issue during COVID, the same issue in relation to that, because obviously there were restrictions on flights. So I think there's an appreciation that that, la that labor, that people do fly in either for harvest season or for other um, perhaps uh, lower paid, uh, lower skilled jobs. And that there's sort of, there's an economic necessity in order to maintain the economy and a certain standard of living and a certain sort of, um, like I said, uh, uh, economy, that that is a requirement, that the, that interconnectedness is, is important and that, you know, an openness um, to having people come into work, whether it's for a short period of time on, on, uh, on certain jobs is, is necessary. Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick this week is from the BBC and it has the headline Pandemic Prompt Super Bowl Ad Rethink in US. So the NFL fans out there will know the Super Bowl is on the 7th of February and the teams are, I'd had to look them up, I'm not going to lie, Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and this is obviously an appointment to view, normally has viewing figures of 100 million in the US um, and with the, the pandemic at the moment probably anticipating even larger viewing figures as people are at home a little bit more than, than usual. Um, but there's been a, a growing number of brands deciding not to to advertise in the Super Bowl and uh, uh, Budweiser have confirmed that they won't be either. And this is partly because, uh, as we know, TV advertising is a, a tricky business and you can't just decide the week before if you're going to take an advertising slot. So these decisions will have been made months and months out, uh, probably in a time when not knowing where we're going to be with the, the global pandemic. So... Bud are just one of the, the ones that have pulled out, but the, the, there's a general reasons that have been pulled out in, uh, in the article. First of all, it's about finding the right message. And some of these big FMCGs are concerned that they won't be able to find the right message, particularly as production for these adverts as well, not only the advertising slots, but they, they would need to be fil filmed well in advance and understanding where the pandemic would be at this stage, it would be really difficult. And also the financial crisis, the fact that uh, over 10 million uh, US citizens are out of work at the moment to to be really showy about a certain brand can be could be quite difficult. So parent company of Bud Anheuser Busch have um, invested what they would normally do in the Super Bowl into um, an ad council campaign to promote vaccination in the states, and they've also uh, pivoted interestingly, I think, to an online ninety second commercial called Bud: The Bigger Picture, which they've pushed out on their YouTube channels. Um, Thinking about other players that would normally be in this space, Coca-Cola uh, uh, are also not advertising, and they didn't in 2019 either. And Hyundai, who would normally be a, a standard fixture in the advertising break, 
also aren't advertising saying about their priorities have changed and vehicle launches have changed too which I thought was fascinating you don't really think of all this sequencing but because of social distancing and the logistics and all the rest of it it wouldn't probably neatly fit when a new model of vehicle was coming out but it can't um pepsi they uh, don't have an advert but they are for the 10th year running um advertising uh, throughout the the halftime show prize for if you know who the halftime show is i had to google it as well oh yes the halftime show usually they have someone like beyonce on or um, who like is it Ma- this Madonna. year donald oh who's you get it a this prize. year yeah oh yeah. good one um uh oh lady gaga no she she did the inauguration <laughs> i know she's too big it's oh, the weekend big. oh right okay <laughs> which made me feel really old (laughs) yeah normally love them that's worth staying up for not so much anyway the uh 30 second advertising slot uh normally costs around uh, just over five million dollars during the championships and the super bowl has a net uh, advertising income of uh, just over 450 million so it is massive obviously to keep that sport nfl fueling and to keep uh, folks interested um uh, and new innovations to come online what the article did also call out is even though some of these traditional players are coming out of um advertising for the super bowl there's some e-commerce players that are stepping up to the plate that you wouldn't normally see and the one that really caught my eye was five with the um, online freelancing platform if you want to get a freelancer to voice something or to build your website or whatever they're they're going into that Super Bowl space so I just thought it was really fascinating that has the pandemic and you you've used the words a couple of times Donald in, in t- tonight's chat about sticky do you mm. think some of the changes for pandemic has naturally mm. going to make some of these FMCG changes to the way that they promote their products both the, the channels and the content stick mm-hmm. and we're seeing a long-term change Absolutely. I was really interested by this one. I really liked, I really liked your selection of this article. Um, yeah, w- well, you know, at the beginning of, of the lockdown last year, it was a case of every FMCG or every company in general kind of released a statement and it was all very kind of generic. You know, our first priority is to take care of the people we, we work with. And, and it was all very like a lot of those statements were just corporate. Like, you, you know, you, you looked at your junk mail folder and you had a um, hundred messages from companies who were saying that they're taking care of their people. Like, you know, we kind of expect that. The, the, the companies that stood out were, were the ones who kind of did something that was kind of aligned to their brand. And what this actually re- uh, reminded me of, I mean, that, that civic duty marketing um, is something that has worked well. And for some reason, what sprung to my mind when I read this one earlier was Bernie Sanders. Did you see? Uh, did you see the memes of Bernie Sanders the at the inauguration, sitting in the chair with his legs crossed and the the kind of mitts on his, on his hands? And um, so, what they ended up doing, the Bernie Sanders campaign or the Bernie Sanders team, is they uh, made T-shirts and and crew neck jumpers, uh, and they um, sold those jumpers, crew neck jumpers, and they gave the money to charity to Meals on Wheels for Vermont which is the state where I think he's a senator. I think it's senator. So like that's marketing that is on brand. Uh, uh, it's to do with the pandemic and it's to, it's civic duty marketing. So like similar to what Budweiser are doing here in relation to doing a vaccine education ad 
instead of you know advertising beer during the Super Bowl. It's something that I think taps into the zeitgeist, if you want to use a German word, yeah. um, at zeitgeist of of uh, what what people want or expect um, from brands that they trust and love, and it comes back to that idea of trust. So for some reason, that Super Bowl um, story reminded me of of Bernie Sanders's t-shirts and crew neck jumper campaign. Brilliant! I know I'd love a pair of those mittens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, it's been lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, thanks. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, delighted to participate. It was great. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the feed industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.